You are listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, DC, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ben Stewart. Well, I remember the first girl I ever dated. I was in junior high and sitting at lunch with my friends, not interested in romance whatsoever. And a buddy of mine came over and put his hands on my shoulder and said to me, hey, Ben, see Kara over there? You should go ask her to be your girlfriend. And I said, what? That didn't even cross my mind. What do you even do with a girlfriend at 12? I'm not interested in that. He's like, no, man, go, go ask her to go with you. That was the confusing vernacular of the day. And I said, I don't wanna do that. I don't know this girl. We've never met. I'm not doing it. He was like, come on, man, go talk to her. I said, no, I'm not going to. And he was like, well, at least just go talk to her. Begin a conversation. And I said, dude, there's not even a seat open by her. Leave me alone. And I thought that was the end of that conversation, but he did have a bit of a mysterious twinkle in his eyes left. But I began to visit with my friends. And then suddenly I remember hearing from across the lunchroom, hey, Ben. And I look over and there's my buddy, Joe. There's a girl confusingly packing up her belongings and leaving a seat next to this young girl. And my friend is looking at this open seat and doing this. And next to him is this confused, just doe-eyed, sweet girl, Kara, looking up, blinking, wondering what on earth is happening. And I look over and I'm like, what is this guy doing? How embarrassing for him. And yet as I think that, suddenly from my lunchroom table, I begin to hear this. Multiple fists in unison banging on the table combined with the words, Ben, 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 Ben. And I'm like, what? What is this? No, I didn't ask for that. This is his thing, not my. What are y'all doing? Stop everyone. But as the banging continues, I realize I can't get out of this. And I look over and I see this girl look confused and I feel bad for her. What is happening? I, I just, I, I need to go relieve this tension. Let me just be a friend. Let me just be a friendly person. Let me just go introduce myself. So to relieve ourselves from this tension, I get up and I walk over and I sit down next to her and the room erupts in cheers. And I go, hi, my name's Ben, what's your name? And I'm like, okay, thank God that's over. Let's just begin to have a nice conversation and then we can leave. I think it's done. And yet suddenly the entire lunchroom begins to break out. Ben, 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 Ben. Ben, and I thought, no, this was it. Wait a minute, why is the mob not mollified? What is happening? Like, they want more? And I realized, oh, they want me to commit to this person I don't even know. And suddenly I feel all this stress and sweat. I'm not ready for a relationship. I don't even know this person. I can't handle this. And I start to look around for help. And as I look to my left, suddenly I see next to me, Coach Atwood, my football coach, the most intimidating man I knew at the school, standing there in his coaching shorts, arms folded, and he goes, well... You gonna do it? I was like, what? What is this? How did you get involved? And so there's no help here. And I turned to the right and suddenly there's my English teacher, Miss Bootney, the most intimidating woman at our school. And she stands there and folds her arms and goes, well, we're waiting. And I was like, Mrs. Bootney? And I'm like, this is crazy. I'm not ready for this. And yet in this moment, I did what I felt the culture was pressuring me to do. I looked at this girl and said, will you go with me. And they said yes, and the room erupted, and they all left, and I confusingly began to get to know this stranger. And over the next few weeks, we 
We held hands because I thought you were supposed to. Didn't kiss her, too scared for that. And then after a few weeks of this bizarre interchange, we were at a party and I broke up with her. And I'll never forget her response. She went, what? And I was like, you're surprised? I don't know you. Why is this surprising? And I left the party and suddenly, because of that, became very popular at school and was invited to every party ever since. Why do I mention that? Because dating is confusing. And I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that, but I think all of us have been to a place where you go, okay, I feel this cultural pressure to pair off, and maybe some of it does, but some of these cultural norms are so odd, and some of this pressure is so deep, and how are we supposed to pair up? And this is all crazy. And the reality is, it's still that way. That dating is, uh, according to Pew Research, a survey they did in 2019, more confusing than ever. Half of Americans say dating has gotten much harder. And rather than being something that's filled with excitement and mystery and fun, for many of us, it's really stressful that you see more and more women as, as Christine Emba, who's from the Washington Post, mentioned in her book, Rethinking Sex. She said so many young women are beginning to experience what she coined heteropessimism, a pessimism that dating is even possible. It's so fraught with confusion and mystery. There was an article this week in Washington Post of a woman that decided to put herself out there, got on a dating app, got to know a guy, and as they began to date in romance, she figured out he was a serial killer. And some of you haven't dated a serial killer, but you're like, but they're out there. And so for a woman, it's terrifying what these crazy men might do. And yet on the other side, there's men that... There was an article that came out two weeks ago in New Zealand that in a nightclub, staring at a woman without verbal consent will be coined as sexual harassment and they will call the police. And so guys that aren't serial killers are like, but I can't make con eye contact or else they'll put me in the camp with that guy. And women are scared and men are scared. It's all confusing. And there's so little trust, so much fear. And that's why Wonder of wonders, less of us are dating than ever, and a place that's supposed to be fun is filled with fear. And yet, let me say this, as, as we move through this book of, of romance and love, we're at this point where we're gonna watch this couple pair off, and let me tell you, this is not a talk about how to get a date. Any of you can do that. You can download an app now, swipe enough, and have dinner with a stranger tonight, right? You set your standards low enough, you can get married tonight. But this isn't how to get a date. It's asking the question of how do we build a relationship that lasts? Yeah. And, and here's the thing, even if you do pair off with someone, let's acknowledge that dating is risky. One date, if it goes bad, it's just wasted time and maybe some money on a meal. But you really start to journey of sharing your heart with somebody and it doesn't work out, or you share your body with someone. Man, in my counseling experience, nobody cries like the brokenhearted. And so these are risky grounds that we're trampling in. And some of us go, well, why would I go skipping through this minefield of romance? And it's because every few months you attend a wedding and you see a beautiful, committed love and you go, but I want that. And all throughout every survey I've read of our modern world, the, the longing for love is as strong as ever, but the navigating of the complexities has never been more confusing. And yet in the midst of that, we have this wonderful book of poetry in the Old Testament called the Song of Solomon. And it's not an obsession with sex and romance, but it's not a repression of it. It's not overthinking it and it's not asceticism, but it is a celebration of the gift 
God has given us of romance with each other. And what we're gonna see tonight is something crazy. We're gonna watch a couple that last week we saw they were attracted to each other in the first chapter. It was, it was the song of yearning. And then in chapter three, we're gonna attend their wedding. And so somewhere between thinking you're cute and thinking you're the one, how do we navigate this crazy space? We're gonna watch a couple do it right. And my hope is they give us a vision and a hope of how we might follow them too. We're gonna watch a couple deepen in their evaluation, in their communication, and in their commitment. And when it's done right, can I tell you some good news? There's joy. There can be joy. And that's where we meet them in our passage. Chapter two, verse eight begins a new poem and it's the woman speaking and listen to her heart. She says, the voice of my beloved, behold, he comes leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. How do you know you've met somebody with which you can pursue the possibility of marriage? One way you know is there is excitement. Look, he is coming calling for her and she is excited. As she speaks, it's short staccato sentences that show how excited she is. Behold, he comes. My beloved's a gazelle. He is swift and graceful. He's like a stag. He radiates masculinity. And notice he's excited too. He's not sauntering. He's leaping and bounding to her house, overcoming hills and mountains. He's moving past obstacles. Nothing will keep him from his beloved. And when he gets there, he's peering through the lattice. He wants a glimpse of his beloved. How do you know someone you can pursue the possibility of marriage? There is excitement. They're not trying to play it cool. There's such a bizarre influence on our culture today where we say you can't catch feelings as if they're a disease. We want to feel good and we want to feel loved. And this is people that don't have to apologize for that yearning. They celebrate that they have found someone whom they're excited to be around. And last week we looked at the, in the evaluation of dating, the emphasis was on character. Is this a person you can trust? Before you set your affection on them, can you trust them? Has their character been etched by God? And now you see a chemistry as they begin to circle around each other, as they see each other from afar. They see character and there's chemistry. When I'm around you, I'm excited. I like being around you. How do you know you're around someone that you might want to pursue toward marriage? You enjoy them, which sounds so obvious. But I talk to people all the time that they're dating someone and you watch them and that person kind of annoys them or gets on their nerves or we'll talk to people who are like, man, I've been dating this person and I don't know if they're the one or not, but we've invested so much in it. And you're like, hey, do you like being around them? When you hang up the phone with them, is it a relief? If you go to dinner with them, are you constantly looking around for help and checking for the exits? Pay attention to that. Dating is about evaluating. Do I want to journey with this person for the rest of my life? And if you don't enjoy being around somebody, that's a pretty good signal that they're maybe not the one. I remember when I was in college, I had a friend that he was dating a girl that would always berate him, just emasculate him in front of other people. And finally I asked him, I'm like, why do you put up with this? And he was like, well, we've just been dating so long. It's like we're married, you old ball and chain. I'm like, you're 22 and she's not nice. Like you clearly don't enjoy this. This is a bad choice to stack forever on this. 
Do you enjoy being around them? And I want you to notice this evaluating is done in a public square. She says, behold, look, there he is that they're looking at each other in a public square. And look, I know this is controversial for many of us. The dating scripts have changed. They weren't all good in the past and they're not all bad now. But for many of us, we've privatized the dating experience. It doesn't happen in a social community. It only happens on an app. I only let Google in, right? Only Mark Zuckerberg may help me. (laughs) And what's happened in that is we miss the opportunity to evaluate someone in the safety of community. That, that I don't just evaluate them alone over a meal, I can evaluate them corporately. And we talked a bit about that last week. That they're, they're able to see each other's character in the public space. And that's a good thing. And yet I talked to many people that say, well, Ben, I can't date at my church because then if it goes bad, like who gets the church and the divorce? And I'm like, in dating, you're not divorced. Let me tell you something. Like if you do dating right, you can pursue getting to know somebody emotionally, and if it doesn't work out, you can maturely step away from them. But let me tell you something, this is why it's so important, one of the reasons, to hold the physical aspect of intimacy out while you're evaluating. Because as we talked about last week, sex is fun. And it releases chemicals and hormones in your body when you touch someone. Some of you have known that. You did that in junior high. The first time you ever held hands with a girl, it was like, like a little bolt of energy. You're like, woo, right? And the next time maybe you put your hand on the small of their back, you're like, hey, I'm gonna do that again, right? And, just, and as it started, you went further and further and, and you don't even know if you like this person. You just like touching their body. And you go, hey man, th- yeah, that's fun. But, but after a while, do you enjoy hanging out with this person? And so the reality is you hold the sexuality back, you hold the physical part back so you can evaluate, do I like being around you? Do I enjoy a conversation with you? I've sat at dinners with couples that you go, every time she tells a story, he rolls his eyes. Every time he talks, she gets annoyed. But I know that they're just sort of addicted to the sex, but they don't even like each other. This isn't gonna last. That's like gasoline on a fire. It flares up big, but it won't endure. The relationship has to be built on sterner things. And so you want to hold back the physical to evaluate personally. And the reason why I mention this in this context is I read an article several years ago that said, hey, the severity of a breakup is not tied to the longevity of time spent. It's, it's tied to how much of yourself you gave physically. That if we have bonded with each other, which physically releases that oxytocin, hormones that, that promote bonding, it's that ripping apart that's t- painful, that rips apart social circles but I've watched people get to know each other in church environments, realize, oh, you're not the one, and be able to talk about that and maintain a social community. It is possible for you to evaluate one another in a social context. I would even say advisable. There's much more I could say, but Lord have mercy, we need to move on. Anyway, so there's excitement. They like being around each other. It's something important. If you're dating someone, do you miss them when they're gone? Right? Uh, for me, that was a helpful tool when I dated Donna. Uh, that when we first met, we were spending every day together and all this time together and it was, it was too much input and I wasn't certain how I felt, which I know confuses some people. You're like, wait a minute, a man who's uncertain how he feels, just take it by faith. There's a few of us running around and I wasn't sure. And so we had a summer where her band was going one way and I was speaking to things another way and I said, let's just slow down our communication. Let's write letters by hand and I'm not pushing you away. I just need time to think. And for me, it was helpful to to get two of the greatest tools for discerning, evaluating a relationship, time and distance. And I realized as there's time away and distance, I miss her. And I don't just miss being in a relationship or I don't just miss her body. 
I miss her. I like being around her. I like talking to her. One of the ways you know you're with someone that's a good person to pursue marriage with is there's excitement. I like being around you. But notice there's more. Look in verse 10. My beloved speaks. And he says to me, arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. The flower appears on the earth. The time of singing has come. And the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs and vines are in blossom. They give forth their fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. Ladies, what time of year is this? It's springtime. Yeah. That he says, hey, look around. In these early moments of our relationship, it's beginning to bud. It's beginning to blossom. Fruit is beginning to grow. Buds are beginning to unfold. There's, there's life. That being around each other is life-giving. It's a picture of a garden beginning to flourish. That's another good evaluative tool if you're trying to figure out if someone's the one. Do I like being around them? Do I miss them when they're gone? And when I'm around them, does, does it promote my life? Am I a better person as a result of being around them? Do they challenge me spiritually? I know for Donna and I, when we started dating, I knew way more than her theologically because I studied that kind of stuff for my job, right? I paid a lot of money to know more than her and most of you about this book. And I'm bent that way anyway. Someone just asked me recently, what do you do for fun? I said, read books. And the reality is I read more than her, sort of knew more theologically, but she had this deep intimacy with God that, that became such wise discernment and decisions and, and discipling of other people. And I was like, hey, hey, we're different in some of our expressions of spirituality, but man, she challenges me in areas where I'm weaker and I challenge her in areas. Hey, we improve each other. It's sad for me when I watch sometimes a, a godly guy and a godly girl get together and the union of the two of them makes them disappear from the church. And not in a good way where he says, come away. There's a natural pairing off that happens as you pursue intimacy with someone, but in a way that suddenly they, the way that they relate feels unhealthy, feels shameful, feels like a drag, feels like there's always drama. And you watch them not spiritually grow in each other's presence, but you watch them spiritually wilt. And hey, some of you, maybe you're like me. When I, when I would date in my 20s, I dated wonderful girls that loved God, but every relationship was confusing and painful and, and, and best summed up as a dumpster fire. And, and I was like, why does this keep happening? I was like, multiple relationships. The girl's great. The way we're dating is fine. There's, there's some common denominator that's making this crazy. What could it possibly be? And I was like, oh no, it's me. That I've got some emotional wounds from my childhood. I've got some issues I've never dealt with. And trying to relate to another person is showing me, I got to get some things right in me. And I'm not saying you got to be perfect before you date somebody, but some of you go, hey, I, I don't have a healthy me yet. I don't need to pursue a healthy us. And so let me work on me before I work on we. And yet here, this couple, they've begun to relate to each other in a way that's exciting, that's fun, and it's life-giving. I'm improving in your presence. You're making me someone better. And so now this couple's arrived at a place where they were interested in each other, attracted to each other. They're excited to be around one another. This is life-giving. I'm finding myself when we're at a party, I, I look for you, I talk to you, I linger with you, I visit with you. Everyone starts leaving, we stay. That I'm interested in you. And in the midst of that, watch, as they evaluate, they begin to communicate. And the man begins to communicate with clarity. Notice he says twice, arise and come away with me. 
there is clarity in his communication and his intention. Notice, guys, he doesn't saunter to her house. He doesn't go like, I don't know, you wanna watch Netflix or whatever? Look at his verbs. He comes, there's intention. He stands, there's clarity. And he speaks and says what he wants and what he's asking for. He's a man that initiates with this woman. And now I know, can only men initiate? Hey, no, women can't share how they feel. You watch Ruth do it. You see the Shulamite woman do it here in chapter one. And yet surveys still say in our liberated society, women love for men to initiate. And here this man realizes I'm attracted to this girl. There's excitement around us. There's life. And so he moves towards her and he asks, hey, look outside, look out here. The figs have a sweetness. The blossoms have a beauty. There's something growing in us and I sense it. And so now let me be official and communicate with clarity my intentions. I want you to come away with me. And he's pictured as a gazelle or a stag. That's, that's a mixture of strength and skill. That he's, he's confident enough to say what he wants and skillful enough to do it in a kind way. Now, let me say, men today, by and large, are not as skillful in the initiating of communication. And I am not shaming them. It's not their fault. Dating scripts in the past, as confusing as they were and imperfect in other ways, there was a built-in expectation in particularly society in the West for men to initiate with women to take them on dates or sit in the parlor on a normal occasion. I remember talking to a guy, I'm not that old. And I remember talking with a guy that grew up in West Texas and he said in their town, there was a dance every Friday night and the expectation of young men is they would invite a date. And it wasn't inviting you to evaluate whether we should be together forever. It was to go to the dance. And yet they would go in the midst of the community and they would pair off and, and the community sort of helped these couples do that. And I was like, so you were asking a girl on a date every single week? And he said, yeah, the whole town would be there. You had to go and you needed to bring a date. I was like, so you just, you just had reps. You just got good at it. And he was like, oh yeah. I was like, would people reject you? Oh yeah. And what would happen? You'd go, ow, I survived it. That doesn't mean I'm a bad person. It just means we're a bad fit. But look, next Friday's coming. And they just kept working the reps. And they got better at talking to a woman, talking to a girl. That, that doesn't happen as much in society today. So if men are less skillful in communicating, ladies don't shame them. Our culture has made it confusing. The dating scripts have fallen. It's made it all a little unclear. But I wanna challenge you, men. Look at this guy. He communicates her with intention. This is where a lot of women get hurt early in dating. You can text a girl, fine. Maybe ask her to coffee, that's great. But you start to text her regularly, you start to ask her to four or five dates, she's gonna begin wondering some things. And at some point you have to stop and define the relationship and talk about what you're doing. Uh, I remember for me, when I was a youth pastor, I had a guy on my staff who came to me and he was attracted to a girl that was a volunteer in our ministry. And he was like, hey man, I just want you to know, I wanna ask her on a date and I wanna make sure you're okay with it, how you feel. And I got nervous. I was like, bro, she's our best volunteer. Do not screw this up. If you wound her, hurt her feelings and she leaves, I will not forgive you. And then I gave him some strong unsolicited advice. I said, you ask her on a date, fine. But if you ask her on multiple dates, about date three or four, when you drop her off, you pull up and park that car and you say to her, hey, I want you to know I'm enjoying spending time with you. I really enjoy getting to know you. I'm not trying to pressure you like, let's get married next month. 
but I'm not wasting your time either. Uh, I, I would love to be married someday and you seem like the kind of person that, that maybe we could start walking down that path together. So I'm just gonna keep initiating to spend time with you, to get to know you. I said, and then you give her a big door out. You say, but if at any point in this you feel uncomfortable, you let me know and it's okay. I trust God with my life. I trust God with yours. I don't need to manipulate you. You don't need to feel pressured. As we trust God, let's walk and let's just enjoy getting to know each other and see maybe where it leads. And uh, I didn't know how that was gonna work out, but he did it and I watched. And they dated and they got engaged. And I remember being at the rehearsal dinner, she stood up and grabbed the mic and she was telling everyone what she loved about this man. And she said, one of the greatest things about Chris is I never wondered where I stood. Every few dates, he would tell me, I'm enjoying getting to know you. I'd like to continue. I will call you. So I never had to leave a date and go, did he like it? Will he ever call me again? What's he gonna do? My friends and I weren't trying to parse every word in a text. I knew where I stood. And she said, that was such a loving thing to do for me. She said, he gave me the gift of clarity. And clarity is a kindness. And I remember when I heard that, I was like, I knew it would work. And so I did it too, and it worked. <laughs> Clarity is a kindness, and he's clear with her in how he speaks. And let me tell you something. This is one of the confusions, again, about modern dating, and I'll bring up sex again for this reason. Uh, Christine Emba, in her book, uh, Rethinking Sex, written here from Washington, D.C., she talks about the liberation of sex from the confines of a committed relationship. And she said, okay, that happened in the sexual revolution, but what's happened now is many people put sex on the front end of a relationship before they even know somebody. And she said, what that's done in the dating sphere is it's made dating unclear. Are you asking me for coffee? What does coffee mean? Are you asking me to a movie? What expectations are tied to that about my body? And so because sex has been liberated from commitment and put way early in the evaluation process, it's made people scared of the evaluation process. Uh, the Economist did a survey at the height of the Me Too movement, which was good in many women speaking about how they've been mistreated by men. But in the midst of that, they were asked, is inviting someone for a drink sexual harassment? One out of every 10 women said yes. One out of every four men said yes. That suddenly in this environment, the liberating of sexuality did not lead to more sex. What it led to was less dating which ironically led to less marriage and less sex, that our liberty has cost us. And so for many of us, it's the restraining of that so that coffee can just be coffee. Let me get to know you. Is there excitement? Is there life? Is there clarity? Is there kindness? And I want you to see, guys, in his communication, there's a vulnerability. He goes first, that he's, he risks being rejected. And yet as this couple's watched each other, he approaches the lattice. Notice it's not, a, it's not a wall that he's scaling. It's not a military imagery. It's this lattice that's a barrier between friendship and risking to maybe see if it's more. And he's willing to step across it, willing to face rejection and saying, hey, we have this little lattice of separation. You're in your house, I'm in mine. Would you be willing to come out into this garden of potential growth of romance? But as he communicates with that kind of clarity and that kind of vulnerability, Notice it's also with empathy. As he talks about what he's asking her, he knows what he's asking. As he speaks to her, he realizes what he's asking her to do. And in verse 14, he says, Oh, my dove, in the cleft of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face, 
Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet, your face is lovely. He changes the metaphor. Now he's not a, a gazelle by the lattice. She's a dove, a, a tender animal, high up and inaccessible in a rock, hidden away. He's acknowledging there's a vulnerability to this. I'm asking you to step forth from a place of safety and share more of you with me. He understands that there's a risk that a lot of women have been hurt by men and are uncertain how to deal with you. And so for him, he doesn't say, well, she's up on the cliff, so I'm climbing this cliff and grab me some doves. He doesn't say that. What does he do? He initiates with intention. He speaks with clarity. He goes first with vulnerability, says what he sees, he compliments her, and he shares how he feels. And then he invites, and he invites, and he waits. And this is the dance of dating. From initially, all the way to whatever words you wanna to put to it, courtship, moving towards marriage. It's a, it's a dance of risk and response. That's what it is. Notice when you first get to know anybody, it's little risks. You talk about nothing. You talk about the weather, talk about sports teams. But as you persist in talking to someone, you risk a little bit more. You tell him your favorite TV show. And maybe you tell him that and he goes, man, I think that show's stupid. And you're like, okay, well done with you. Back up into the rock I go, right? Like, I'm not sharing with you. Or maybe you risk telling him this is my favorite show. And he was like, I've never seen that show. I don't know anything about it. What do you like about it? And he responds with a question. And you go, well, I think I like the way these characters relate to each other. He's like, you know, I don't watch that show. I don't know if it's the kind of thing I'm into, but I like that you like the way they talk to each other. And you find, oh, oh, he's engaging. Oh, risk was met with a nice response. Well, I like this other show. And I like this kind of music. Well, that music's stupid. Okay, roll them up. I'm out. No, or, or we begin to risk more and share more. Well, these are some of my hopes. These are some of my dreams. These are some of my hurts. These are some of my longings. And the dance of dating is the risk and response. I'm more vulnerable. But I, this man acknowledges she's not like a deer or a stag. She's in other places. But here, he pictures her like a dove. That's a tender animal. There's a delicacy to it. Uh, Peter talked about men loving their wives as the weaker vessel. That doesn't mean you're not constitutionally a strong person. It doesn't mean that you're not an equal. He calls them co-heirs in the grace of life. He, he says, there's a delicacy. I don't use my iPad to dig a trench. That doesn't mean my shovel's more valuable. And so here he says, this woman is someone you're meant to treat with tenderness. And so he speaks to her. He speaks kindly. He's vulnerable first. And he's inviting her to vulnerability. But he has empathy realizing I'm asking you to risk. To a dove, there's nothing more frightening than a man's hands. And so here he speaks gently to her. I'm not trying to use you. I'm not taking advantage of you. But I communicate with clarity and vulnerability and with empathy. And as he does it, they begin to share more. That's dating. We share more and more of our hearts. And as you do that, you start to share not just the good parts, but the bad parts too. I know Tommy Nelson, who I first heard teach this, pastor in Texas, he advocated that at some point in your dating relationship, there is what he called the airing of linen. That you, you tell people what you've done in the past and what you do or who you were, particularly in other relationships. And there's a fear to that. If I share someone about some other relationships or things I've done, maybe places I've gone, sexually, relationally, maybe that'll scare them off. Some people recoil from that level of honesty in dating. And let me say, he wasn't advocating on date one. Hi, it's nice to meet you. What's your name? Let's talk through your sexual history. Bad choice. 
But as you're deepening with someone, at some point you don't share every sordid detail, but you share with them where you've been. And I know some people recoil from that. They don't need to know that, that's private. I don't have to tell them. But stop for a minute and listen. What do you long for in a romantic relationship? What do you long for? Complete vulnerability and complete safety. I long to be fully known and fully loved. That's what you want. You don't wanna be bound till death to us part with someone that you're always having to like tack around certain issues and disguise certain past things. You don't wanna do that. You wanna be able to share all of you with someone and they laugh with you about some, they cry with you about others. They forgive you about some. And they say, even when I've seen both the good and the bad, and I've seen the ugly too, I still want you. Some of you, as this dance of dating and courtship gets further along the line, you're gonna hear that person share with you how they were abused as a kid. And it'll break your heart. And you'll cry along with them. And as you do it, you'll mourn, you'll weep. Others, you'll hear about the decisions they made, they regret, and they'll weep over those. And you'll weep too, but you'll forgive and you'll find in you, hey, all this tragedy of sin has touched us all. None of us come in with pristine hands, but I still want you. And as you share and confess and find mercy, man, that will bond you so close. And I know some of you hear that and you go, wait a minute, Ben, if I risk sharing the vulnerable, broken, sad parts of my life, maybe some choices I made I'm not proud of in this romantic sphere, what if that person won't forgive me? What if they reject me? Well, thank God you found that out before you got married. And good riddance. Because Jesus Christ knows everything about you and still chose you. That's our God. The bride of Christ did not come to the altar pristine. None of us did. And you want to marry someone who's like Jesus, that loves you and has grace for you and cares for you at your best and your worst. And if that person can't forgive you for what you did in your past, what are they gonna do when you hurt them in the future? You want someone who's like Christ that can love you, good and bad, weep with you, but believe that God can make a door of trouble, a valley of trouble into a doorway to hope. That's what you want. And so as they speak to one another with, with increasing vulnerability and empathy, they begin to knit together. And you see not just evaluation and communication, you see commitment. Now we want this relationship to work. Notice the pronoun shift in verse 15. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes to spoil the vineyard, for our vineyards are in bloom. The vineyard all through Song of Solomon is presented variously as, as her body sexually or their relationship. Now she's come out of the house and she says, this is our vineyard. Our little relationship is beginning to bloom. But as our relationship's beginning to bloom, as we're realizing, hey, I really like this person. Hey, they really like me. Hey, as we risk, there's a response and we're getting closer together. As they do that, and many of you have experienced this, as that dance of love gets closer, you start to realize the threats. There's things that could compromise this. There's things that could crush this flower before it blooms. And so you see a commitment rising in them. And as they commit, notice what they do. They say, we have a vineyard that's blossoming, but then they call out to the trusted community. Catch the foxes for us. Come help us. Foxes were uh, pests in the ancient world. Mischievous, crafty, and they would come in and, and, and as a plant was just beginning to bud, they would eat it so it never really grew all its fruit. They would eat a flower before it rose to its potential. They can be a nuisance. And they sound terrifying, by the way. I don't know if you've ever 
heard, what does the fox say? I'll tell you what they say. It sounds like someone's torturing a child. Uh, we have foxes that live out behind our house. And at night, you just hear this screaming that you're like, oh my God. Like I have run out into the night ready to go to war with someone and realize, oh, it's just a fox who's happy and he knows it. I'm like, geez. I heard my wife tell someone the other day what a fox sounds like. She's like, it's kind of like a mixture of, of a tea kettle and murder. And you're like, geez. I mean, it is horrible. And in this imagery, they're the threat. And some of you have felt that as a vulnerable little relationship to grows, you start to realize there's some threats to the budding of this relationship. There's the threat of conflict and we need a commitment to resolve problems. That what do you do when you do disagree? And you'll run into that. As you risk and respond, there'll come moments where you disagree with each other. I remember for Don and I, when we first started dating, we were on a walk one day and as we were talking, she said something to me and, and I just said, yeah, I think you're wrong. I totally disagree with you. And then I looked and noticed I was walking alone. <laughs> and I turned around and she was standing there like in genuine shock. And I remember for a while I thought, and scene. This relationship's <laughs> over, like whoops, a little too honest. And I noticed in that moment, oh, I risked some honesty and she disagreed with me. And whenever you conflict, what happens? You either hit with someone and recoil and the relationship gets further apart or you press in with a question. And I watched her go, what do you mean by that? I was like, well, what I mean is, and I told her what I thought about what she was thinking and this thing and what that guy could possibly be thinking and why I think she's misreading this. And she's like, so you think this? Yeah, not that. Yeah, okay. And we began to talk and we realized, hey, we just navigated our first conflict. And when you navigate conflict well, it leads to greater intimacy. And the reality is you're gonna get to places of conflict and you'll have to watch. That's a threat to a relationship. It's a fox, can you catch it? Some people, when they disagree, they explode in anger. That's cancer, that's dangerous. Others, they freeze you out and you have to try to guess what's wrong. I'm sorry, baby, talk to me. That's not healthy communication. Can we risk vulnerability for the sake of the growth of the relationship? And here they see a threat, but I want you to notice they call to the community for help. We are meant to pair off together, but also keep people around who can help us. I remember when I started dating Donna, I was uh, on staff at a church that was in the suburbs. And so I was like the single guy on staff. And let me tell you, people were very interested in my love life. It was a normal thing on Sundays, for women to come up to me and be like, I want you to meet my niece. I want you to meet my cousin. She's right here. And you're like, ah! And I was just like, you know what? Send out a memo. Ben doesn't date. Like Paul, he is single until death. Leave it. All right, I was just like, stop it, people. And then I saw Donna when we were at a retreat. I thought she was amazing. I thought she was hot. I was confused and yet kept moving towards her, etc. And then as I started to initiate and date, I didn't want anyone to know because I pictured it as this little budding flower. And I knew well-intentioned people would be like, look at that little flower. Let's help the leaves grow. And like, get off your stem, like, stop it, stop it. <laughs> I don't want any of you to know. But then I thought, but I need some people to know because I don't have a clue what I'm doing. And there were some couples that I knew loved God and were wise and loved me. And I went to them and said, will you help us catch the foxes? There's a vineyard beginning to bloom. Will you just help me see what you see? Are we communicating in a way that's healthy? And, and many of our early dates were with other couples. Come see us. I think another fox that runs through the vineyard is a desire to expedite things sexually. Brought it up multiple times already, but, but sex uh, is fun. And it releases chemicals in your body that says, do that again. But it's, 
it, it can mix up the evaluation process that you get addicted to someone's body and don't really realize, oh, I don't really know them intellectually and I don't trust their heart. So you gotta hold that back. But the more you begin to risk and respond and reward, you get attracted to each other, but that can mix up the evaluation process. And so for me, I realized, man, I need some people around that will help me restrain sexuality for the sake of evaluation. I would show up and Donna and I would speak and lead worship at this event once a month. And I remember there was a guy there that was a former Navy SEAL. And I remember he came to me as our relationship was getting more serious. And he walked to me and he said, hey man, how's your relationship with Donna going? I said, it's good. And he goes, look, I've been a young man. I know what's going on. I asked you a question, son. How is it going? And he kind of pressed me up against a wall. And I was like, uh, good, man. Haven't touched her. Not touch her, man. Not touch her. <laughs> and what I loved about this guy is I knew he'd been a bouncer in his pre-Jesus life. And when he put a guy against the wall, it usually didn't go well after that. But he had me up against the wall and he said, hey, man. And he began to talk about how he loved this young woman like a sister and how he knew as a young guy, it was hard to restrain a sexual urge, but it's, 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 you're meant to, to pursue, is this a person that I, I love and trust? And I remember he grabbed me and was like, uh-oh, looking for plate glass windows. And he grabbed me and began to pray over me. And he would weep for us. And I asked him, ask me every week how we're doing. Because I trust you. Catch the foxes with us. As we began to date, we were never alone in an apartment. Because I was attracted to her. But I didn't want to grope her. And so I realized, hey, if you're not attracted to him in that moment, you got a different set of problems in your relationship. But for me, I don't want to expedite things sexually. So if we ever wanted to watch a movie at night in an apartment, we did it at my apartment because I was living with a roommate named Justin, whose last name was Case. And so whenever we watched a movie, this is a true story, we would sit on the couch. It was me, Donna, and Justin Case. <laughs> so we could actually watch a movie and discuss its merits, right? I spoke at a retreat years ago for a denomination in India, the Martama Church, and they had me speak to the youth group, which I thought meant teenagers. It turns out it means everyone not married, so they're all about 25 to 30. And uh, they began to talk to me about arranged marriages, how it was common even in their uh, network. And I was like, what? Are you serious? Like your parents tell you who you're married? You're like, hey, meet your spouse. Uh, okay, uh, what's your name? I'm like, that's crazy. And they're like, no, it's not like that. They said, no, like often we tell our parents, hey, what about that one? What about that one? What about that person? And they said, and our families get involved and, and we're obviously involved in the process, but they're like, man, if you're, if you're trying to figure out who to spend the rest of your life with, why would you not involve people who are, who are invested in your well-being? Why would you not want the, a community helping you catch the foxes? And it's like, geez, when you say it like that, uh, I'll be arranging my children's marriages for now. <laughs> no, I mean, look, I don't know that you gotta go that far, but there's some value to saying, hey, we're committed to, to a purity in this evaluation and we're asking the community to help us, help us do this right. But as they continue this dance of risk and response, as they continue to bind together, as they work through conflict and, and manage restraint, notice what happens in verse 16. My beloved is mine and I am his. That she begins to say, I love him, but not just the word love, it, it takes the idea of possession. My beloved is mine and I'm his. Notice it's not, he just wants to use my body or I just want to use him. It's, no, he cares about me, all of me. You are a unified whole, your mind, your heart, your body. And she said, hey, he wants me and I want him. 
And as they begin to see this about each other, as they communicate, as they work through conflict, there's a deepening bonding that occurs. She says he grazes among the lilies. He is walking gently through our loving relationship. And the more they communicate and the more they're committed, the more vulnerability and empathy, the more their desire grows. And in verse 17, she voices her desire until the day breathes and the shadows flee. Turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains. Now, commentators disagree on this. One commentator I read thought she told him to turn away, meaning I'm attracted to you, but I'm not ready. So the young stag that came across the mountains go back across the mountains. And yet that last verse where she says, be like a gazelle among the cleft mountains. Some translations say the mountains of Bether. Bether is not a mountain in ancient Palestine. Uh, It's a transliteration of the Hebrew word, which means to separate or to cleave. And so what's happening is, is this man communicates and he's gentle, he speaks to the dove and she comes forward as their vineyard begins to bloom and the fox isn't taking away its potential as it ripens, as all this happens, as she sees he values my thoughts, he values my emotions, then she gets excited physically and she says, hey, I want you to be a gazelle or a stag, but not on those mountains. I want you to be a gazelle and a stag on the mountains of cleavage. You're like, uh-oh, okay, that's come up before. She's talking about her breasts and notice she says, until the days breathe and the shadows flee. That's when the sun comes up. What she's saying is, all night long, all night. Mm." Okay. And you're like, okay, girl. All right. She's attracted to this man. He's attracted to her. She longs for him. And then in the rest of our verse here, we'll go quickly in chapter three, you get this amazing thing. Various translators call the bride's anxiety or the bride's dream. You see in verse one, she says, on my bed by night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. They don't live together. They're not married. She's in her own bed. And she says, but I'm in my bed and I'm searching for him. Most think that's not her looking at her bed like, where did he go? She's realizing, no, I'm in my bed and I'm discovering I love this man. As we've been dating and courting, I'm realizing I long for him. And so she rises up and the text says, she said, I will rise now and go about the city in the streets, in the squares. I will seek him in my soul lives, uh, loves. I sought him and found him not. Many think this is a dream sequence because it's unlikely for a woman to, to just burst out of doors at night and run around the city looking for him. But it's, it's, it's the poetry of longing. She's willing to risk. A woman running at night was as dangerous back then as it is now. And yet here she's saying, I want this man. And he, he initiated, he came running towards my house. And as I was responded to him and seen that he's, he's worthy of my trust with my heart, I want him. I desire him. And now she says, I've got a determination. I'm looking for him. Verse three, it says, the watchmen found me as they went about the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed him when I found him whom my soul loves and I held him. I would not let him go until I brought him into my mother's house, into the chambers of her who conceived me. It sounds sexual. I'm searching for him in my bed and then I go grab him and I grab him and I bring him. And then there's this interesting twist to my mom's house. And you're like, "Uh, oh, Okay, sure. Like, uh, come grab me in the night and uh, introduce introduce me to mom. Hey, maybe have some cookies and be like, that's great, Barbara. And uh, sort of visit about our lives. What what is going on here? Well, some commentators think the watchman is a picture of of, uh, her her chastity, her purity, her body, that that there's there's a sense of of restraint. Can I trust this man? So I'm, I'm in my home and this guy's been initiating with me and I've been interested with him. Our hearts have been knit together. And so I've decided I want him. And as I want him, there's a check in my spirit. There's there's kind of something in me that says, are you sure? And what she says is, yes. 
And so she pursues him past the watchman. She grabs him, but then she brings him to mom's house. Why? It only comes up a few other times in Genesis. As, as a woman is approached with a marriage opportunity from a man, she runs to her mom's tent because the mom was pictured as a person that was a place of safety to, to discuss and contemplate the things of romance and love. And so she says, before I give myself wholeheartedly and all my body to this man, mom, is this the right guy? community that I trust, is this person worthy of my affections? And she says, I want you. Let me just make sure to check all the boxes before I give myself fully. Because I don't want to give myself away to you in pieces. I want to give you all of me, mentally, emotionally, physically at once in a committed relationship. I am my beloved's and he is mine. This expression of love happens in, in the safety of commitment. And she says, come to my mother's house. Let my family approve of this. And then notice the warning as she closes in verse five. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles of the does of the field, you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. True love, lasting love, it has a lot of communication. It has evaluation of character and chemistry. It has a resolve from a community to work through conflict and see if you're worthy of trust. It's evaluating, is this a person that we enjoy being around each other? Is this person my, my friend? Then there's a restraining of the sexual impulse that's very natural to make sure, is this person worthy of all of me? And then there's a moment of commitment that I want all of you and I wanna give you all of me. And so she tells these young women, wait for that. Don't settle for the guy that wants to use you. Men, don't settle for a cheap imitation of this. Rather, she says, you wait, wait. Love takes time to blossom and it grows, but don't hurry up and chomp on buds and think you really have a romance. Let the garden breathe. Let romance grow over time so that your marriage and the safety of commitment can have this full giving of sexuality and sensuality that's not just my body, but heart, mind, and soul as well. Now, as we close, let me say there's so much we said and so much we didn't. But I know for many of us, you hear all this and you go, well, Ben, what if I didn't do any of that? I didn't pursue a girl that way. I didn't date that way. I have done all kinds of things I'm not proud of. What happens? Well, let me tell you something. Commentators throughout history have rightly seen this book in an allegorical sense as a picture of God's love for his bride. And that's true because we're told in the New Testament that marriage is a picture of God's love for his people. That in the Old Testament, Yahweh, God, Israel, his nation was his dove, his sweet one. And his precious bride cheated on him a lot. A major theme in your Old Testament is God, the jilted lover. And yet he never stops pursuing he never stops loving. He comes after her and makes the valley of trouble a doorway into hope. I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you've been. You have not outsinned the grace of God. You have not extended beyond where God's love can travel. Jesus Christ is the one who looks at his bride, the church, and says, I'm running for you. I entered history for you. I bound over obstacles for you. I made myself vulnerable on the mountains for you, pouring out my blood. Why? Because your form is lovely. Come forth. I want to see you. 
So church, before you try to get a relationship with a guy or a girl right, know that your God is calling to you like the lover for the beloved. God is coming to you today in the cleft of the rock saying, I wanna see you. I want you to trust me. Yeah, I know confession's scary. Yeah, I know telling God who you are, being honest about your sin is scary. But these are hands that can be trusted with the gentleness of your heart because Jesus Christ was willing to sacrifice all for you. He is the true lover of your soul. You come to him and you find life, you find love, you find redemption, and God will take broken people like you and like me and weave together beautiful stories. He's done it in the past and he's done it in the present. He will do it in the future. The grace of God is too good for you to walk out of here without hope. So, so much of my dating and relational life was a train wreck. And yet God used a loving church and community to help me, heal me, teach me, refine me. And when Don and I got to know each other, it wasn't all perfect, didn't all go according to plan. And yet as we began to know each other, as a community helped us, and we reached to a point where I remember being at a party one night out on a boat, 4th of July, fireworks going on, glasses tinking, everyone celebrating and I was staring off wistfully in the distance. They're like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm like Gatsby staring at the green light. My beloved is across the waters. And I realized, oh, I want her. And that's a good thing. The dance of love is complicated, confusing, and beautiful when we do it under the guidance of a good God and a grateful community. But before we get that relationship with a guy or girl right, Let's get a relationship with God, right? If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thank you for listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast.